Thank you, Father, for the clarity of your word and our uh, certainty that what we have here is truth, your revealed truth. Pray that you would give us um, understanding and uh, a deep appreciation for what you have done for us in Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Over the last handful of weeks, uh, more than a month now, I suppose we have, we have taken a break with Easter and then our mini-series of looking at what does it mean to be a resident alien in, uh, in this world. Uh, this morning we're going back to our study of salvation, God's glorious salvation, and uh, part 11 here, we are looking at um, the concept of unconditional election. How God brings sinners into a relationship with himself. Now, by way of review, uh, it's been a while since we have uh, been on this topic, so let me, let me take a little bit of time to just set the stage again. We have established the certainty of God's sovereignty and man's moral and spiritual inability to affect his eternal destiny. Scriptures are very clear on that, and we've spent weeks um, explaining that, uh, demonstrating that from, uh, from the pages of Scripture. In 1610, you will recall, there were a group of students of a professor, Jacob Arminius, who rejected the reformational insistence on God's absolute sovereignty in all things, particularly with regard to our salvation. They challenged the doctrines of predestination, of election, of free will. In their remonstrance, that's what they were called, they were called the protesters, they summarized their theology in five points. And it was in response to this, Synod of Dort, 1618 and 1619. It was in response to those five um, uh, statements in their theology that we have the, the five points of Calvinism. Calvinism, Calvin didn't invent these five points. Uh, they came uh, half a century after he had already died. The, the first of their five points, the, the remonstrance, what we call Arminianism. Uh, the first point was, or concerned rather, conditional election. They believed, they affirmed, they submitted that the scriptures teach that God elects to salvation on the basis of sinners meeting the necessary conditions of repentance and faith. They said that, that these two conditions in particular had to be met before God would elect or choose an individual for salvation. Um, 
So, so here, here's, here's the question for, uh, for, for, for debate. We know, and, and everyone affirms in this discussion, that not all people are saved. We are not universalists. On what basis does God save a person? On what basis does, a God, does God save a person? Well, the fact that he chooses some is evident in Scripture. Everybody knows that, and we, we, we all affirm that. For example, uh, God chooses Israel as a physical nation. In uh, Deuteronomy 10, we read, On our fathers, on your fathers, Moses says to the people, On your fathers did the Lord set his affection to love them, and he chose their descendants after them. Speaking of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, um, Jacob who was, whose name was changed to Israel, um, God said, I, I'm going to choose your descendants, the Israelites, and they would be um, God's, God's people, and he would establish them as a nation. In Deuteronomy 7, Moses says this, The Lord did not set his love on you, nor choose you, because you were more uh, more in number than any of the peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers, the Lord brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. It's not because uh, there was something special in the Israelite people, not because they were more numerous, not because they were more righteous, but because of God's promise. He chose, as an act of pure grace, he chose to show favor to the descendants of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and, and form them into a nation and welcome them into his land. This idea of God choosing is not just an Old Testament concept. In the New Testament, we find that God chooses men and women unto salvation. Here's, here's but one example. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, Paul writes, He chose us, the Father, chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. God chooses whom he chooses before the foundation of the earth. All right, that that verse does not tell us why God chooses. Is there something in the text of Scripture that would inform us as to why God chooses? (coughs) Well, we we might look at a a, a few texts of Scripture. Uh, We might might postulate, well, God's going to choose whom he chooses, uh, because they are righteous, because they are good people. Well, text of Scripture, um, in, uh, in the book of Titus, chapter 3, verse 5, verse 4, reads this way. When the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us. Not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy. It is by God's 
grace that we are saved, not by anything that we do. Um, Is it by the goodness inherent within us that God would choose to save us? No. Isaiah 64, your righteousness, your so-called good deeds are nothing but filthy rags in the eyes of the Lord. Well, um, does God save us because we are smart enough to figure it out? We read the pages of Scripture, and it's like a light bulb goes on. We go, oh, I get it. No. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 14. Spiritual truths can only be discerned by spiritually minded people. The natural man, as Paul identifies the unbeliever, is unable. He doesn't have the capacity to understand spiritual truth. Why? Ephesians chapter 2, mankind is spiritually dead. We are unable. We are uninterested in coming to faith. We are um, in, in, no, um, in no ways uh, able, uh, we, we don't have the ability to, to understand faith and, and come to uh, a, a point of, of repentance and trust in the Lord on our own. So, back to the question of debate, on what basis does God save a person? The reform posi- position, the reform perspective, uh, and and we we use that of of the people like Martin Luther and John Calvin and Zwingli and Ecolampadius and uh, Martin Bucer. And there, there's so many of so many of the guys. In, um, in, in the uh, early 16th century that uh, saw with clarity and they talked among themselves that they were collectively those who were looking for reformation within the church. These reformers understood that salvation is, does not come to us on the basis of anything inherent within us, anything that we would do, anything that characterizes us. It is purely by God's grace that we are saved. A.W. Pink said this, and I, I've uh, used this quote before, but uh, again, by way of review, I, I, I put this in front of you again. He writes this, No doctrine is so detested by proud human nature as this one, namely God's sovereign unconditional election, which make nothing of the creature and everything of the creator. Yes, at no other point is the enmity of the carnal mind so blatant and hotly evident. While the truth of eternal punishment is the one most objectionable to non-professors, that is, unbelievers, that of God's sovereign election is the truth most loathed and reviled by the majority of those claiming to be believers. He continues in another volume. The only reason why anyone believes in election 
is because he finds it clearly taught in God's word. No man or number of men ever originated this doctrine. Like the teaching of eternal punishment, it conflicts with the dictates of the carnal mind and is repugnant to the sentiments of the unregenerate heart. And like the doctrine of the Holy Trinity and the miraculous birth of our Savior, the truth of election must be received with simple, unquestioning faith. Now, that doesn't mean that it's an easy doctrine to wrap our mind around, because we as fallen human beings think a lot of ourselves. <laughs> and we, we, we think, well, there's got to be something within us that would cause God to choose us. There's got to be something worthy within me, right? The Reformed perspective is, uh, nope, ain't. Hey, it's purely by God's grace, we are saved. Well, let me, let me give you the other side, the, the reform perspective. Now, I'm talking within the confines of, of um, those, those people that are genuinely saved. I had a conversation here a couple weeks ago from a young man who, who knowing my, my background, being saved in a, um, a, a liberal uh, mainline church, he said, do you think those people were saved? Now, he wasn't questioning my faith and my salvation, um, though I, I suppose some people looking from the outside into that conversation might, might look at it that way. Uh, no, he, he, was, he was simply saying, can somebody who really thinks there is something within them that causes God to look at them with favor, can those people be genuinely saved? And my response to them was, you know, there are, there are going to be errors and inconsistencies and incompletenesses in everybody's theology. Nobody's going to have it all dial in, dialed in. And, I mean, even, even the likes of, of a Martin Luther or a John Calvin, they, they have things that were not quite all together. And God, God saves us sometimes in spite of our incompletenesses and our inconsistencies in our thinking. And I would say that for, for a, a number of people, particularly those in, in uh, the, the Armenian camp, um, that uh, affirm the doctrine of conditional uh, uh, election, um, I, 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 would, I would say that this is, this is one area where where they've missed, missed the mark and have um, placed other thoughts in front of the Scripture so that they're, they're, not, they're, not, they're not thinking accurately or, or plainly here. Well, here, here's, here's a, a statement by John Wesley regarding the Arminian uh, perspective on this. And I'm using his just a, as, a, as a beginning point. He, he wrote this. The Scriptures... Tell us plainly what predestination is. It is God's for appointing obedient believers 
to salvation. Saying his, his words in, 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 in a different sentence. He's saying that God appoints, he elects, he chooses those who are obedient believers. Um, he continues, not without, but according to his foreknowledge of all their works from the foundation of the world. We may consider this a little further, Wesley writes. God, from the foundation of the world, foreknew all men's believing or not believing, and according to this, his foreknowledge his, he chose or elected all obedient believers as such to salvation. In other words, uh, Wesley, Wesley argues a uh, common way to, to express the Arminian position. God looked down the corridors of time and he saw those who would believe in him, who would repent, who would believe, and on that basis, he chooses. So he does elect but it is conditioned upon their repentance and faith. All right? Here's uh, a, a gentleman I, I am unfamiliar with. His name is Thomas Ralston. He wrote um, a work called Elements of Divinity in 1882. It was published by a Southern Methodist publication, which tips the hand as to uh, the fact that he, he's in, in lockstep with, uh, with a John Wesley. Quote, Before the election in question can exist, there must be a real difference in the objects or persons whom the choice is made. Even an intelligent creature can make no rational choice where no supposed difference exists. And we suppose that the infinite God will act in a manner that would be justly deemed... Uh, Let me start that sentence again. Can we suppose that the infinite God will act in a manner that will be justly deemed blind and irrational in man? Is God going to do anything crazy, irrational, The thought is inadmissible, he writes. If God selects or chooses some men to eternal life and rejects others, as all admit to be the fact, there must be a good and sufficient reason for this election. It is because the one is good and the other bad. The one is righteous, the other unrighteous. The one is a believer, the other is an unbeliever. Or the one is obedient and the other rebellious. These are the distinctions which reason, justice, and scripture recognize. And we must rest assured that they are the only distinctions which God regards in electing his people to glory and sentencing the wicked to perdition. In other words, you're on your own, and on the basis of what you choose, Forget the fact that you are spiritually dead, spiritually unable to discern spiritual truth. Forget about that. On the basis of your choices, you will be chosen by God or not chosen by God. So your salvation is all on you. All on you. 
Mike, Mike, my question to, to this mister, or maybe a Dr. Ralston, is are we making God in our own image? Hmm. Now, we would, we would all agree that God is not irrational, but his ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. His reasoning is not necessarily connected with our reasoning at all. Does God make choices for reasons? Absolutely. He has reasons, but some of those reasons we may not know. And it may not have anything to do with me or you. Listen to 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9. Uh, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9. He, God, saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ from all eternity. God saved us, not on the basis of anything in us, but purely as a demonstration of his mercy and his grace. Now there's some agreement and there's some invention in this debate. The agreement is that man is spiritually dead, unable to respond to the things of God. Now, if you remember in, in the past as we have dealt with this topic, there are different flavors of Arminians. <laughs> uh, there, there, there are some who we would, uh, we would not welcome as um, brothers and sisters in Christ uh, because of, of how off the chart they are with this whole idea of man being responsible for his own sin, uh, for his own salvation. Then there are the John Wesley types that we would label as evangelical Arminians. And we would embrace them as brothers. We might, we, we might not have close fellowship with them because of these kinds of differences. But I, I want you to listen to, to what John Wesley writes. Adam, quoting from John Wesley, Adam before his fall, had such freedom of will that he could choose good or evil. But since the fall, no child of man has a natural power to choose anything that is truly good, such as the freedom of the will, free only to do evil to wander further and further away from the living God. Amen. I like that. I would agree with that. And at this, at this point, I'm, I'm, I'm locked arms with John Wesley. Yes, you are, you are right. Man is spiritual dead. We don't, spiritually dead, we, we don't have the ability, we don't have the capacity, don't have a will, don't have a desire to please God in, in, in any uh, significant or eternal way. No, none. Here's um, another... Uh, another Arminian who, 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 who 
who seems to ignore what John Wesley has just written. He doesn't. They, uh, they, they have an invention here. But, but listen, listen to this. This is from a gentleman by the name of Minor Raymond. He says this, quote, that salvation is conditioned upon man's acceptance and cooperation by faith is implied in all the commands, precepts, exhortations, admonitions, entreaties, promises, and persuasions of the word of God. And such passages as the following are equivalent to a direct affirmation that man determines the question of his salvation. He that believeth shall be saved. He that believeth not shall be damned. Man determines the question of his salvation. Now wait a minute. These are both, these are consistent with the Arminian position, an evangelical Arminian position. Affirming that we are dead, depraved, without ability, and yet we are the ones who are responsible for our salvation. We are the ones that have to choose. And God has to see repentance and faith before he chooses us. How is it that we get there? How do, we, how, how do we get from being spiritually dead to somehow being spiritually alive so that we can respond to the things of God or respond to the scriptures? Well, this is, this is where the Armenian will, um, will present the doctrine of provenient grace. Provenient um, uh, meeting, uh, preceding grace. One uh, leading uh, Armenian scholar said this, without the doctrine of provenient grace, a Calvinistic logic is irrefutable. In other words, if this has to be taken away, if this has to be taken off of the table, the only option is the Reformed position regarding God's unconditional election. Okay, let's, let's uh, define this. Um, because of man's inability to respond, because man is spiritually dead, it is on the basis of Christ's death that God has restored man's ability to respond to the things of God. So when Jesus was on the cross and he said, it is finished, the Armenian says, what is finished here is Christ lifting all of mankind out of their spiritual deadness, and now they are, as, as it were, at the edge of the birth canal. And they can now choose or not choose to repent and believe. 
So by God's prevenient grace, found in the cross, given universally to all men, they are now no longer spiritually dead, but now they have the ability, the capacity to respond to the things of God. Will they or will they not? It's up to you. Yes, you may ask a question. We'll get there. We'll get there. You, you, we're right here and we have to get that right there. Okay? <laughs> um, um, so, so the A main question that we have to ask is, is prevenient grace, is this doctrine taught in Scripture? And the answer is, no. It is an invention. It's not in Scripture. We, we, could, we could put it in a, uh, in, in a syllogism like this one. Like this. Major premise. All people are spiritually dead. Okay, we're going to all sign off on that one. Yeah. Minor premise. The universal call of the gospel assumes the universal ability to respond. Conclusion. To all spiritually dead people, God has restored their ability to respond. Now, in, in this, this thinking and this assertion of the truth of, of the doctrine of prevenient grace, we, we, have, we have elevated man's rationality in the absence of scriptural support, um, we, we, man's thought trumps what God has given to us. And that's a dangerous place to be. Well, to your question, Marianne, what, what, what scriptures might we look at? Well, let's look at a couple. Romans chapter 8. We're looking at how, how does the Arminian justify this idea? Now, the, the, now there's, there's, there's no scripture that, that talks about this idea of prevenient grace. It's, 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 it's an inference. So we're looking at some of the, the a couple of the, the verses that will uh, lead us to where, 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 do they, where do they come up with this? Romans chapter 8, verse, uh, uh, verse, verse 29. We, we could start at 28, but, but uh, 29 gets us into the heart of it. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, so that we would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he, for, he predestined, he also called, and those he called, he also justified, and those he justified, he also glorified. We, we, we call, uh, particularly verse 30, the, the golden chain of salvation. And the idea of this golden chain is that 
that all, all of the, the pieces, predestination is a piece, calling is a piece, justification is a piece, all of these pieces of the chain are, are locked tight together. And, and you, can't, you can't separate them. It's, it, is, it is one chain. You, you get the whole banana. If you have been predestined, it goes all the way through glorification. The, the thing that seems to kick this off at the beginning of verse 29 is this idea of foreknowledge. God looking down the corridors of time, so it is assumed that that's what this verse means, this word idea of foreknowledge means. God looks down the corridors of time, sees your repentance, sees your faith, and therefore predestines you, and now you're into the golden chain. Those who are predestined, called, justified, they're glorified, they get the full meal deal. We see the same idea over in 1 Peter chapter 1. This is where we spent a little bit of time here very recently talking about us being resident aliens. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens, scattered throughout Pontius Galatia, etc., according to, verse 2, the foreknowledge of God the Father. So it is on the basis of God's foreknowledge that the Armenian says God sees our our, um, our repentance and faith, they affirm what the scriptures teach regarding man's depravity, his total inability, and they say there has got to be a way to get from man's inability to get to, to, to man um, repenting, trusting God, that, that God looks down the court at times, he, he sees that. How is it that we get from inability to ability to, to faith such that God can look down the corridors of time and see uh, what we have done with his gospel truth and therefore predestine us, elect us, choose us, and eventually glorify us. How is that? Well, that's where the doctrine of prevenient grace comes in. It's got to be, it has to be something like this, they would argue. That God um, removes that spiritual inability so that we can choose. Well, all of this is is, um, based on a, a faulty understanding of foreknowledge. When scripture speaks of knowing someone, it, it's, it speaks of a close, personal, um, sometimes intimate uh, relationship. For example, Genesis 4, 1, Adam knew Eve. We understand what that means. It's a, a euphemism for a uh, sexual union between a husband and wife here. That kind of intimate knowledge uh, was shared by, by Adam and Eve. 
Amos chapter 3, verse 2. God knew Israel, not in any kind of twisted, perverted kind of way, but, but out, out of all of the nations of the world, God chose Israel. And he had a personal, intimate relationship with Israel as his people, his chosen people. Were they chosen because they were um, uh, more righteous, uh, more noble? No, no. They were rebellious from the beginning, and even that group of people that Moses spoke to in Deuteronomy, they were the most trusting of all of the generations of Israel, having seen what they saw coming out of Egypt as children, and then they saw the miraculous hand of God leading them for 40 years in the wilderness. Now they they walk across uh, or walk through the, the Jordan River on dry land, and wow, they are there in the promised land. God leads them in conquest, and it, it, is, it is an amazing thing. That generation trusted God like no other did. And yet, Moses still points out the fact they were, they were a rebellious people. There was, there was nothing noble in this group of people that caused God to look at them and choose them. <clears throat> Nevertheless, Amos 3.2, God knew them. Matthew chapter 7. A passage that I have quoted so many times. Uh, it's a frightening passage. A, a group of people that, that um, knew Jesus on the surface at least, and knew about Jesus, and hung around Jesus, and did lots of religious things, in, and, and in some ways a, a, a lot of miraculous things. And yet Jesus says, Depart, I never knew you. There wasn't a close, intimate relationship with them. So, um, when, we, when we get to passages like uh, 1 Peter 1, Romans 8, uh, the text says nothing about God knowing our actions, like the exercise of faith or the exercise of repentance. Uh, and on that basis, choosing someone, it, it, he, the, the scriptures here are not talking about foreseeing faith, but foreknowing individuals. So, so this, this knowledge of God is of a person, a person whom he is choosing. He is not... The scripture is not, not saying that he is foreknowing an action by that individual. What this does is it, 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 it cuts the very guts out of this idea of prevenient grace and that we infer that that's what the scriptures teach because of God's foreknowledge of an action. Scripture doesn't say anything uh, 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 about that at all. 
So, so our salvation is not conditioned upon anything in man. It is without condition. It is unconditional. One of the um, systematic theologies on my shelf, um, I have a handful. One of them is by Millard Erickson. Now, now, to, now to say that I have uh, a book on my shelf does not mean that I agree with everything in the shelf. <laughs> I have the Book of Mormon on my shelf, too. Um, I, I, want you, I want you to listen to what he says uh, uh, in summary about... about um, um, our, our discussion here about prevenient grace, about election. He says this, As generally understood, prevenient grace is grace that is given by God to men indiscriminately. It is seen in God's sending the sunshine and the rain upon all. It is also the basis of all the goodness found in men everywhere. Beyond that, It is universally given to counteract the effect of sin. Since God has given this grace to all, everyone is capable of accepting the offer of salvation. Consequently, there is no need for any special application of God's grace to particular individuals. Let me read that last sentence again. Consequently, because of this idea of prevenient grace, there is no need for any special application of God's grace to particular individuals. Of this doctrine, draw a line right through it. Not only does it not exist in Scripture, it is counter to what Scripture reveals. John Calvin said this, the, the importance of this particular study. We shall never be clearly convinced as we ought to be that our salvation flows from the fountain of God's free mercy until we are acquainted with this doctrine of eternal election, which illustrates the grace of God by this comparison, that he adopts not all promiscuously to the hope of salvation, but gives to some what he refuses to others. Ignorance of this principle evidently detracts from the divine glory and diminishes real humility. The invention of provenient grace makes salvation possible, but it doesn't give salvation to anyone. And, as I read from Millard Erickson, you don't need specific grace to be given to an individual in order for them to be saved, because They have everything they need themselves. All they have to do is listen, repent, and believe. And you have 
everything within your being, within your psyche, within your soul, to accomplish that on your own. I think Scripture is very clear that that's not what the Bible truly says. We are unable and we are completely dependent upon God's grace in order to be saved in any way. Amen and amen.